You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Philippians chapter 2. Let me get there uh, by going all the way back to the moment when I was 13 years old. I'll never forget the night. I was sitting in a pew in a church listening to a pastor um, unpack the amazing grace of God. That's what he was doing. So, so he was talking about how out of great love for us that God descended to earth, that he put on human flesh, that he lived in our place, perfectly fulfilling every last command of God, that eventually he died a degrading and dehumanizing death on a cross that was intended to invoke and heap massive shame on a person. And he did all that in our place. He lived in our place, but he also died in our place. And for our sin, everything that our sin deserved, Jesus got on the cross. But then he went on to say that that, that that Jesus who took on human flesh and died on the cross on the third day also rose from the grave, showing God's power over Satan, sin, and death so that now all those who would believe in Jesus could be reconciled to God, brought into the family of God. From that point forward, all who, all who trust in Jesus, they're not treated the way that they deserve to be treated. They're treated the way Jesus deserved to be treated. So for the rest of eternity, they're brought into the family of God and they're treated like beloved sons and daughters of God. He he just unpacked that amazing grace of God and it was there that night at the age of 13 that Jesus ambushed me, that he saved me, that he rescued me. And it's amazing when I look back at that moment, how much I didn't know about the Lord and about what the Lord was up to. There was things I did know. I knew that he lived for me, that he died for me, that he rose again for me, and that I put my trust in Jesus and he adopted me into his family and he made me his own. I knew that, but it's amazing how, how much I didn't know. In that moment, I didn't know. I had no idea how big and beautiful the eternal plan of God was for his people, for me. I had no idea how big and beautiful those plans were. I had no idea at that moment that I'd really just started a journey with the Lord, a journey that's slow, that's oftentimes painful, yet full of joy of of God more and more and more making me into the image of his beloved son. I had no idea just how committed God was into forming Jesus in me and to bringing me along to Jesus' likeness. I just had no idea. I can relate to C.S. Lewis when he talks about this, uh, this way. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. So the metaphor, you're, you're the house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the, roofs, uh, the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised at them. But then he starts knocking the house about in such a way that it hurts terribly and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing there, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. Now, when I became a Christian, I, uh, I had a sense of there's some things that needed some rearranging in my life. 
I mean, God's gonna kind of come into the house of my life and he's probably gonna move that piece of furniture over there and this piece of furniture over there. He's got, he's got some rearranging that obviously needs to happen in my life. But then all of a sudden, a wrecking ball comes and slams through the wall. And it's like, what is God doing in this moment? All of a sudden, it's like the foundations of the house just were like upended and turned upside down. And what is God doing in this moment? Why is God doing this? And the answer is God is creating a mansion inside of me that is perfectly resembling the image of his beloved son. He is forming inside of us, his kids, the image of Jesus. That this is what God is doing. According to Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 29, this is what God's eternal plan is for you. That this is the destiny of every one of his sons and daughters to be conformed perfectly into the image of Jesus. At the moment of conversion, it starts. And one day that's going to culminate. First uh, John chapter three, verse two describes the moment of culmination of God's plan. Uh, John says it this way, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So God has started this, this work, but it, but it hadn't happened yet. Not, not to its full extent. But we know that when Jesus does appear, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That that's the moment when we see Jesus that we are going to become fully like Jesus. The mansion in our house will have the full shape of Jesus in that moment. And can you imagine what that even means? Like I read 1 John 3, 2, I don't even fully know what that means. That we're gonna be like Jesus. Like not just in part, but in full, we're gonna be like Jesus like that. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? This is what God is up to for every one of his sons and daughters. And when you get to chapter uh, two in Philippians, verse 12, it's this work of, of forming a mansion in us that looks like Jesus, not, not just a little cottage, not just rearranging some furniture, but actually forming a palace in us that looks like Jesus. It's that very work that God invites us into. That God looks at us and says, I want to invite you in to be a co-laborer in that work. I want you to participate with me as we build this mansion together that's going to look like Jesus inside of you. And this is where you pick it up in, in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You could break this passage down in three parts. There's commendation, there's a command, and then there's comfort. Commendation, command, and then comfort. First, the commendation. I love verse 12 because there is a pause in it. Like before Paul can get to his primary point, of work out your salvation with fear and trembling, before he can get to that, that sort of command in the passage, he pauses. He pauses to look at the church and to really just look at them in the eye and communicate his deep affection for them again in this, this letter. And it's like over and over and over again, you see Paul doing this. He pauses, looks them in the eye, communicating his deep affection for them. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, Paul is not a detached pastor. He's not writing this letter out of duty to these people. Paul has deep affection for them. Paul loves them. 
He looks at the church and says, these are my beloved people. I I love these people, therefore my beloved. And by the way, he doesn't assume that they know that they're loved by him. He doesn't assume that. He actually tells them that so that they'll know it. He has no assumptions that they're gonna know that they are his beloved people. He verbally opens his mouth up and he speaks that to them. He tells that to them. Therefore, my beloved. And then he goes on. As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He pauses to point out and, and, and make clear an evidence of grace that he sees in their life. He, he doesn't just affirm that he loves them. He looks at a clear evidence of, of grace, a, a clear area in his life where it's obvious that God's at work in them and that he doesn't assume that they know that that's obvious that God's at work in them. He tells them that. He says, I'm looking at your life. I've known you for a long time. I've been around you a lot. And here's what I see when I look at you. You're obeying Jesus. You're you're growing in Jesus. God is at work in you. You're, You're following, you're pursuing. There's evidence of the Lord's grace in your life. He doesn't assume they know that. He he tells them that. And I think there's something there for all of us in the room. I think there's something we need to glean from that moment here with Paul. If you read the letters of Paul, it is very clear that Paul is willing and does give many commands throughout his letters when he's writing to the churches. He gives plenty of commands. But those commands always come in the midst of much commendation from Paul, of much affirmation from Paul. Paul intentionally creates an atmosphere of commendation to surround his commands. So commendation is the atmosphere, the commands fit into the, com- the context of that, that affirmation and that commendation. Now, Paul's example here is something that is worth imitating in all of our lives. It should make a difference in the way that we do our lives, that the way that we, we relate to people. So you can apply this into any relationship that you have. Think of it in terms of parenting, in terms of marriage. Maybe it's a work relationship that you have. Correction should always come within the context of commendation. Commands should always come in the context of commendation. And maybe to take that a step further, if there isn't some degree of affection in your heart toward that person that you're commanding or correcting, if there's some degree of affection toward them, it would probably be wise to wait until there is affection to do that. But Paul's example is worth imitating here. Now, let me just apply uh, in particular to Mother's Day. So th- this is the day where we're setting aside to honor our moms, right? Th- this, is, this is what that day is for. It's just a, a cultural reminder that let's be about the fifth commandment. It's a day where we get to say to them how much we appreciate them, that we love them, that we can see in this specific way an evidence of God's grace. And listen, your mom doesn't even have to be a follower of Jesus for you to see an evidence of grace in their life, for you to see that God is at work in some way in their life. All we have to do is just pay attention to their life and we'll see a way that God is at work in them. So this is a day for us to do that. And and, you know, I, I think this is pretty much a universal reality I think virtually every mother that has ever been is underaffirmed. They're undervalued. Kids assume that their parents know that they're loved or their mom knows that they love them. 
They assume that, they know, that their, their mom knows that they value them, that they can see evidences of grace in their life, but we just, we just don't say it to them. So I just wanna encourage you, let, let's follow Paul's example here. Paul looks the church in the eye and he tells them of his affection for them. And then he points out a particular evidence of grace. I can see you growing. That is God's work in you. Let, let's follow in his steps and today look at our moms and tell them that we love them and tell them of a particular area in their life where, they can, or where you can see evidence of the Lord's work in them. Paul starts with commendation and then he goes to the command. Then he gets to the command. You see it in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's your command. Work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling. So if we're going to understand what Paul is getting at here, we first have to define a word. We need to define that word salvation. That is a big biblical word. So we need to get some handlebars on what that word means. If you cut it to its core, that word salvation means to rescue or to deliver or to save. If you can picture your life in grave danger, like you are about to die in the next moment, and then all of a sudden someone reaches his strong hand down and they save you from imminent danger, that, that is salvation. That's rescue. That's, that's saving. That's delivering. So salvation in the Bible, maybe you could think of it this way. It, it's, it's the broadest word in the Bible to talk about all the benefits that come from Jesus's saving work, his life, death, and resurrection. Salvation is the word that encompasses all of these other beautiful, great gospel words like election, regeneration, redemption, reconciliation, justification, propitiation, adoption, forgiveness, faith, grace, repentance, conversion, sanctification, glorification. All these words and more reflect parts and pieces of that word salvation, right? All of these words are in some ways like massive monuments that the, the Bible built and erects before us so that we can see just how grand that word salvation is. It factors in all of those other beautiful words in the Bible. Now, when you, when you read in the Bible the, about the word save, and when you see it pop up in the scriptures, you see it oftentimes in three different tenses. So sometimes you're going to read it, and you're going to come across the word save, and it's going to be in the past tense, that, that God saved us. It, it's a past tense that you have been saved. And when you see it in the past tense, it most often refers to the moment of conversion. It's me at 13. It's the moment that God rescued me and saved me from imminent danger, right? It's talking about our conversion, that we have been saved from the penalty of our sin. In other moments, it is a future tense way of talking about the, the word salvation, that you will be saved. In that moment, it's talking about our glorification. That's the big word for it. It's the 1 John 3, 2. It's that moment when we are finally and fully going to look like our big brother, Jesus. That, that's glorification. It's that future tense. You will be saved. It's that moment in the future when all the promises of God are finally and fully realized. You will be saved. Future tense. And in other moments, you're going to read that word salvation or, or, or saved, and you're going to see it in the present tense. You are being saved. 
It's talking about something that's happening right now in our life. It's that ongoing and progressive work in your life. And this is the way that Paul is using the word in this text, that word salvation. It's a present work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That, that word work out is in the present tent. It's an ongoing work. It's a work that we're doing right now. It's a present reality. Theologians oftentimes use the word sanctification to describe that present tense salvation, that ongoing gradual work in us that's, that's, that's going on in the present tense. So what does the word sanctification mean? If you have kids in your house, or even if you don't have kids, this would be a really wonderful thing for you to do. You should download the New City Catechism. You can put it on your phone, iPad, whatever. And uh, the New City Catechism takes some of the best catechisms from church history, condenses them into one 52 question and answer catechism. So like one question a week, question and answer a week, and you're through it in a year. But it is a really good way to teach your kids and yourself good theology. So if you don't have that, you should do that. Um, but it, one of the questions that it asks in there is, what is sanctification? What, what is sanctification? Here's the answer that the New City Catechism gives to that question. Sanctification means our gradual growing righteousness made possible by the Spirit's work in us. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about our gradual growing righteousness that's made possible by God's work, the Spirit's work inside of us. This is what he's talking about when he's talking about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you look at verse 12, there's some clues that this is the sort of salvation that he's talking about. Not only is work out in the present tense, but, but look at this verse again. The first part of the verse says, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, as you've always obeyed, continue to, in, in the present tense, work out your own salvation. So in a lot of ways in this passage, obey and work out your salvation are synonymous. They're two ways of saying the same thing. He could have said, as you've always obeyed, keep obeying. He could have said, as you've always been working out your salvation, keep working out your salvation. Or he could do it like this, as you've always obeyed, I'm gonna change the metaphors now, keep working out your salvation, keep, keep doing what you're doing. So they're synonymous. And then you might underline the first word in verse 12, therefore, and this is just a, uh, a, a, a kind of a, a principle of reading the Bible that we all need to develop. Anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, what's the question you need to ask? What's it there for, right? What is the therefore there for? And in this passage in verse 12, the therefore is there to ground this passage, this command in verse 12, back in what we just saw in verses five through 11. It's connecting those two passages. It's connecting the work of Jesus in verses five through 11 to this command. So everything we're commanded to do in verse, in verse 12 finds its roots, found its, it finds its foundation back in verses five through 11. Paul's showing us here in that word, therefore, that Jesus's doing is what enables our doing. And without Jesus's doing, we would have no hope to do anything. Jesus' doing enables our doing. So maybe you could ask it this way. In Philippians chapter two, who obeyed first, us or Jesus? Answer, Jesus obeyed first, right? Uh, chapter two, verse eight. He was obedient to the point of death. That is, how, that is how far Jesus took obedience. All the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus obeyed to the point of death. Therefore, 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the logic of the passage. Jesus's obedience enables our obedience. Without Jesus's obedience, we would not be able to obey. But with Jesus's obedience, we're able to obey. I love how a friend of mine put it. He said it this way. Here's the Christian life. The Christian life goes like this. God loves you, so he became obedient for you. Therefore, you obey. That's the Christian life. God loves you, so he became obedient for you. Therefore, obey. Now, here's our problem. So often, we think of the Christian life this way. We obey, therefore God loves us. That's the exact opposite of the Christian life. It's not we obey, therefore God loves us. It's God loves you. He became obedient for you, therefore you obey. If you, if you equate the Christian life into we obey, therefore God loves us. If you do that, if you get the order wrong, you, you may have Islam, you may have Mormonism, you may have karma, you just don't have Christianity. Christianity is God loves you, so he became obedient for you, therefore you obey. Now, this command to work out your salvation, to obey, to, to be about the work of growing in godliness, it comes in, in two different sort of ways in this passage. There is an action and then there's an attitude. And if we're gonna be obedient to what this passage is saying, if we're gonna live in this passage, we've gotta see both the action and the attitude of it. So first, the action. It's work out, that's the action. Work out your own salvation. That, that Greek word means to produce, to bring it about, to, to, to affect it. To like, you're gonna work and, and by your working, you're gonna bring this thing into completion. It's an active word. One commentator sums up the heart of this word in this phrase. That to work out your salvation, to work it out, means continuous, sustained, and strenuous effort. That's what it means to work, work it out, work out your salvation. I mean, you, you almost, if you just take the word work out and ask your, your, yourself, what is the imagery I get when I just hear the word work out? That, that's, that's the action of it, Right? It's you in a gym and you're sweating because you're, because you're lifting weights, because you're on the cardio machines and you're, you're exerting energy and effort. That's working out, right? That's the action of this passage. Work out your salvation, growing in Christ's likeness. It's not a passive reality. It's an active reality. We don't work out our salvation by folding our arms and saying, I'm just gonna let go and let God. That is not biblical. To, to grow in godliness means we're going to exert effort. We're going to work at this. We're going we're gonna to strain. It's going to require strenuous effort, sustained effort, continuous effort. And let me just show you this in several passages in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Later on in Philippians, Paul says it this way. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So he's saying, I, I'm not there yet. God is still at work in me doing these things. But I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Paul is saying, this is the, the strain that my life has taken on to grow in godliness. I am pressing on. I am straining for this thing. I am pursuing this thing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for it, Paul's saying, or the author of Hebrews is saying. 
It's the same sort of imagery. Work it out. Strange, strive, continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. First Timothy chapter four, verse seven. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. If I were to say, hey, in a couple of uh, years, I would love to be able to bench press like 300 pounds. If I just kind of sit back, fold my arms and go with the, it's just sort of going to happen approach. It's not going to happen, right? That takes training. And Paul's saying the same thing. It's like, if we want to grow in God, then it takes training. We have to get in the gym and work it out. First Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body. Paul says, and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. Paul's saying, this is the Christian life. I'm disciplining my body. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith, Paul says. Fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. If you get into the octagon and you have a passive approach to fighting, what's gonna happen? Something terrible, right? It's going to go really bad. The, the imagery of fighting requires strain, right? Continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. To take hold of something means that you are striving for it, that you grab it and you're not letting it go. That, that's the imagery Paul is using. And, and remember, this is an invitation from God. God is constructing something in us. Jesus is constructing, or God is constructing a Jesus-like mansion inside of us. He's not just rearranging the furniture. He is upending the house of our life to make us look like Jesus. And he is saying, I want you to participate in that with me. I want you to co-labor in that with me. I want you to be about the work of this. This is not passive. A construction site is not a passive site, is it? It is an active side. There's a pressing on, a striving, a training, a discipline, a fighting, a taking hold of this thing to, to grow as a Christian. Now, saints who have gone before us, I love just periodically reading some quotes from them because I, I, you know, in a lot of ways, we're just standing on their shoulders. And I want to read a couple of them. One is from John Owen. He says it this way, a pastor of a few hundred years ago. He says, God works in us and with us not against us or without us. God does not work in us if we hold our hands up like this and we just say, you know what, we're just, I don't know, we're just gonna kind of wait and let, let go and let God. That's not, how, that's, that's not how God works. He doesn't work without us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the assistance of divine grace is not given to us to put aside our own efforts but to excite our efforts. God comes to us to work what in us? To work in us to be indifferent? No, to, to work in us to, to will with resolution and firmness. Does he work in us to have us sit still? No, he works in us to do. The direct effect of the influence of grace upon the heart is to make a man active. And the more grace he has, the more energetic he becomes. A man will never overcome sin except by energy. So it's clear in the scriptures that if we want to grow in grace, if we want to grow in godliness, if we want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it means that we're going to have to exert real effort. 
If we want to grow more and more into the image of Jesus, we're going to have to strain, continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. There's the action. Now the attitude. He says, work out your salvation. And then here comes the attitude. That's the action. Now the attitude. Last phrase. With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now what does that mean? Fear and trembling. I, there's several ways I think you could go with that. But I, I want to just highlight one particular thing that I think it means. If fear and trembling are the sort of emotions around the pursuit of working out our salvation, that's the, the feeling we should have. If that's the, the sort of emotions we should have as we work out our salvation, that would indicate to me that working out our salvation is serious. I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's an important thing that it should strike in our hearts like a real sobriety, that there should be a real seriousness around we, we, like we want to grow up in Jesus. We want to see more of Jesus formed in us. It's saying something about the seriousness of this. Fear and trembling, that that attitude it is saying that working out my salvation should be of the utmost importance in my life. That's my attitude toward it. That's my posture toward it. That Jesus being formed in me, that Jesus likeness is no joke in me, but there's like an earnestness, a sobriety, a seriousness about it. That I am eagerly, steadfastly with all sorts of sobriety saying, man, I want Jesus to be formed. I want to look more like Jesus tomorrow than I do today. And I want that. Um, when I was in college, I, uh, one of God's graces to me was a group of four or five friends. Um, I just look back and I really do thank God for these men. Um, they were all chasing after Jesus and I just got planted kind of right in the middle of that group and um, learned so much from them. And for the last three years of my college life, there was an older gentleman, he was about 40 years old, that came back and every Sunday night would spend a couple of hours with, with this group of four or five guys that I got to run with. Just investing into us, pouring into us, teaching us about Jesus. And, you know, it was just a regular rhythm in our life to meet on a Sunday night. We would um, confess sin together. We would read the scriptures together. We would learn about Jesus together. We, we would just be doing all of that. And one of my friends in particular, his name was Jay Bratton. He was a roommate of mine uh, for one year, uh, kind of back in my college life. Man, he, he is one of the sweetest man, men that I've ever known. I just, I, I love this guy. Just such a humble, sweet posture about him. And one thing that, that he taught me in those years of, of life with him was that there is a big difference between confessing sin with a passive posture and confessing sin with an earnest posture. Like confessing sin, repenting of sin with an eagerness to actually grow up in Jesus. Confessing sin with a, with a real eagerness to put that sin to death. I, I, I just, I remember watching Jay in numerous moments when, when it almost would feel like we'd kind of waved the white flag. I guess this is just the way life is gonna be for us. Um, when I, I would watch him down on his knees confessing his sin before the Lord and then I would watch him stand up and in ways that we weren't begin to strive for holiness. 
to begin to strive for godliness, to begin to strive to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. And it's that very attitude of, of that eagerness, of, of that willingness, of that, of that sobriety and seriousness that Paul is after there. He's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In a lot of ways, Paul is correcting that passivity. And, and he's looking at us and saying, man, let's get to work doing that. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing more important than that. Let, let's be about the work of growing in godliness. Let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And remember what Paul has just said in verses 9 through 11, where he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think what he's saying about doing this with sobriety, with fear and trembling, flows out of that. Paul is reminding us there in verses 9 through 11 that we're all going to be standing before Jesus way sooner than we could ever imagine. Even those who live the longest in the room, we're going to be there so quickly. You're going to blink a few more times and we're going to find ourselves before our crucified and risen King. And wouldn't it be a travesty to, to realize in that moment that everything that we were serious about now turned out to be worth nothing then? I mean, wouldn't that be a travesty? So, so church, can we be about now, like right now in our life, can we take it with the utmost seriousness? Can, can we be about pursuing those things now that will mean most to us then when we stand before Jesus? And what's going to mean most to us when we stand before Jesus? Godliness. More of Jesus formed in us co-laboring with God as he is working to form in us Jesus. That's what's going to mean most to us then. Now, when I read verse 12, I, I am prone to discouragement as I read it. When I hear Paul with, I mean, just encourage us with sobriety to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I am just all too aware of how discouraging the journey toward Jesus' likeness can be. And it's prone to discouragement. I mean, I don't know if you, I feel this. I think most people who are on the journey with Jesus feel this. It's like, man, but I just keep sinning over and over again. I mean, how many times is God, how many times can I do this and God still put up with me? I just keep failing and falling. I mean, I, I, our journey of becoming more like Jesus, our sanctification, it's so gradual. And oftentimes so grueling, right? I mean, I think in a lot of ways, our physical growth is a metaphor for spiritual growth. There's never been a moment where you've looked at a person and you've seen them day one, and then you look at them in day two and you've thought, man, you've grown, a, you've grown an inch since yesterday. There's never been that moment because people don't grow an inch in a day. It doesn't happen, Right? It, growth is imperceptible in people even when they're growing fast. And that's, that's what our sanctification, that's what that process of becoming more like Jesus often feels like. I mean, we're looking in the mirror and we're like, I, I just can't see it. I mean, am I growing at all? And one of, the, uh, one of the byproducts of spiritual growth, like when you're growing in godliness, you know one of the things you become more aware of is how ungodly you actually are. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the byproducts of actually growing more godly. You begin to see your ungodliness everywhere. 
that can be discouraging, right? I mean, it can be disheartening. Paul knows that. He knows that, that our, our journey of becoming more like Jesus can be full of discouragement. So, and this is why he writes verse 13, the comfort. And just hear thir verse 13 in the context of verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This passage is not a command to self-sufficiency. For, for you to pull up your bootstraps and get about the work of becoming more like Jesus. That is not what verse 12 is. Verse 12, the command of verse 12 is followed by the comfort of verse 13. Look at verse 13. For, that's, that's grounding verse 12. Verse 12 sits on the foundation of verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 13 shows us the grace of God that energizes all our efforts for God. That's what verse 13 is showing us. God's work is what energizes our work. Verse 13 is intended by God to be encouragement for every, for every weary hearted, tired follower of his, every kid of his that's just like, man, I'm, 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 I'm growing in Jesus, but I feel so discouraged as I'm doing it. Verse 13 is written for you if that's what you feel this morning. If you just feel discouraged in it, man, I'm trying to grow up in Jesus, but it's hard. It's one step forward and it feels like two steps back. Verse 13 is for you. And the accent in verses 12 and 13 is not in verse 12, our work, but in verse 13, God's work. And here's why the accent and emphasis is in verse 13. Because God's work energizes our work. We're commanded to work out our salvation, but our working out is based on God's working in. That's what energizes our working out. The fact that God is in us doing things and working in us. And you see this work in three ways. I'm just gonna briefly run through this and then we're finished this morning. You, you see his work in us come in a couple of different ways. One, in this passage, we see that God is always at work in us. When Jesus saved us, he didn't just save us and then leave us to fight sin on our own. God sent the spirit to indwell us, to empower and energize the fight against sin and the fight for godliness in our life. That's what the spirit is doing in you at all times. That there's never a moment in your Christian life where God abandons you to your own self-sufficiency for you to grow up in Jesus. At every point, in every moment, right now in this room, God is at work in you and always at work in you, energizing and working into you what you need so that you can work it out. It's humbling and sobering to know that for the rest of our time on earth, there will be a force at work within us called sin, and it works like gravity, just consistently dragging us and pulling us down into darkness. For as long as you live on this earth, as you follow Jesus, that, that, that force is gonna be within you, remaining sin, doing that, put, pulling you down into darkness. But it's so encouraging to know 
that there is someone in us that's more powerful than the sin that's trying to drag us down. And that's the indwelling spirit of God who enables our working out, who energizes our working out. And let me just clarify, God working in us does not negate our need to work things out, right? God working in us does not create a, well, okay, I'll just stand back and God will do it. I guess he'll just do it all. That's not the way God works. He works not to negate our work. He works to then energize our work. His working in us then enables us and God to work through our effort and our strenuous work, right? It doesn't negate our work. It enables and energizes our work. God is always, for the rest of your days on earth, he is always at work in you. God's work, God is always at work. God is also comprehensively at work in us. Comprehensively at work in us. God's work in us encompasses both our desiring You see that in verse 13. He is at work on our will and our work, right? So he's at work in both our desiring and our doing, both our willing and our working. So so God is at work in a comprehensive way. It doesn't get any more comprehensive than that, does it? He's He's not just enabling us to do things. He's enabling us to desire new things. If you've been a Christian for any time, you'll know what I'm talking about. Along my journey with Jesus, there have been moments where I'm like, well, I've never desired that before. I've never wanted to do that before. I mean, there's been these moments of like, I'm looking at the Bible that I've never wanted to read. And I've thought, I've never had this moment of looking at that Bible and actually wanting to read it. I've had these moments of like, um, I actually want to pray. That is God working in us, right? I mean, it's these moments of like, and and hopefully you've had these. God is doing this in you. Like, I actually want to sing to Jesus. I actually want to use my body for the glory of God now, not for the glory of myself. I actually want to use my money for the glory of God now. I actually want to use my time for the glory of God. That is God working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, That is the comprehensive work of God, not just in your doing, but all the way down into your desiring, what you want, what you feel in your life. But God's work is not just that he's always at work in us, that he's comprehensively at work in us. God is also effectively at work in us. Look at that last phrase in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love that last phrase. May we, church, may may we receive fresh encouragement from that last phrase, for his good pleasure. That, That phrase draws our attention away from ourselves and onto the divine initiative of God, to the divine purposes of God. That, that, that last phrase is assuring us that in the end, nothing and no one can frustrate God's plan of making us into a Jesus-like mansion. Just receive fresh encouragement from that. God is at work for his good pleasure. That is saying there is nothing or no one that's gonna stop God from working in you doing everything needed in you to make you look like Jesus. Nothing is gonna stop God from doing that. 
Nothing is gonna block God or thwart God from doing that. So church, may we with fresh encouragement today from the scriptures, participate with Jesus, co-labor with Jesus. May we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing today that right now in this room, it is God who is at work in us, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment to allow the Lord to minister to you and to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning. In what areas of your life is God at work in you this morning? Enabling you now to work out your salvation, to strain for it, to strive for it, to, to press on toward it. What, what are those areas that need to be worked out? And don't allow yourself to stay vague this morning. What are the particular areas those particular places that sobriety with the Lord and a seriousness with the Lord would, would have you consider this morning? Where are those areas that don't just need to be passively confessed and repented of, but that need this morning a confession that has an earnestness about it, a repentance that has a a zeal and a fervency to it. And I love that this morning we're gonna be, be able to end with communion because communion reminds us that God is always at work in us. It points us back to the saving work of Jesus who lived for us and then crawled upon a cross where his body was broken and his blood spilled on our behalf who rose from the dead. It's reminding us that our sins have been forgiven. Not just your first sin, but your 10 millionth sin. They've been forgiven and wiped clean. Communion is reminding us of that. It's reminding us that even if we've sinned for the 10,000th time, there is always grace to be found in Jesus. But communion is also reminding us that new life is possible in Jesus. Jesus didn't just die for us. The spirit now indwells us, working in us so that we can work out our salvation. So Father, would you help us this morning? Would you help us live in verses 12 and 13? Would you help us be a church that embraces this, that can receive fresh encouragement from you today that you are at work in us and may your work in us energize our work, our growth in godliness, our continued maturity in you. May it bring about a seriousness. I want to see Jesus formed in us. Oh God, would you do that today? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.